0: Hello, this is Tom Williams, and you are listening to Talk Theater in Chicago's Interview Podcast. My special guest this week is a gentleman that I've uh, had uh, on my radar for a while. I was so impressed when he took over the Lyric Opera at his press conferences that I said, well, I've got to interview him. And now, after one year, uh, I finally have an interview with Anthony Freud. Hello, Anthony. Hi. Good, good to chat with you. Well, tell us now. This You've celebrated one year at the Lyric Opera.
1: Tell us what your general impressions are of Chicago and of the Lyric Opera. I'm having the best time, I must say. It's a wonderful city. Uh, It's a wonderful company. Um, I'm thrilled to be living in this great city, and I'm very honored and very thrilled to be part of this marvelous organization. Lyric is a real family. Um, It's a, a large family, but nonetheless, it has a real sense of company, a real sense of common purpose, a sense of shared ambition, shared pride, a determination that everything we do be of the highest quality and serve the largest number of people. It's really a very, very inspiring place to work. What about Chicago? What's your impressions of Chicago? Oh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be living right in the middle of the city. Um, I'm renting an apartment and it's uh, a thrill actually to come to work every day because um, I can walk to work in about 35 minutes. So if the weather's nice, I do. And if the weather's not so nice, I take the 157. And um, it, it's wonderful to be in the middle of a really vibrant, really energized, really buzzy city. Um, I, I love the architecture. I love the lake. Um, I, I love Chicago's sense of history. Um, I suppose above all, I, I'm blown away by the sheer breadth and quality of the cultural infrastructure in Chicago. Um, the city is, um, fantastically well served by an enormous range of really world-class cultural organizations. Um, I, I'm a real theater lover. I'm a dance lover. I'm a music lover. I, am I, I grew up in London uh, and, um, in the seventies, London was an absolute mecca for um performing arts sure um, was. A, a, and still is it still is, I, it, still is yeah. it still is but but I, I somehow was fortunate through the coincidence of my birth growing up in london and, and and having that at my disposal but also i'm very grateful for the fact that i took full advantage of it as a young teenager um i i became completely obsessed with opera with with symphony music with with ballet, with theater, um, from a surprisingly early age. and I I read where you were 14 and you made up your mind that you wanted to run an opera
0: company one day. Yes.
1: It it sounds hokey, but it's literally true. If you'd asked me when I was 14 what I wanted to do when I grew up, I truly would have said I want to run an opera company. Because opera of all the performing arts, became the real abiding passion from the age of about 12 or 13. Um, I, I started going by myself to the opera um, from that age, um, I joined the Young Friends of Covent Garden, um, the Royal Opera House. And, and as a member of the Young Friends, which was the European equivalent of the Guild, um, you get a certain number of ticket vouchers, um, that you exchange for, for tickets. And the face value of the vouchers was normally the equivalent of the cheapest seats at Covent Garden. So I, I used to go, um, several times a week, wow. um, sitting in the top, in what what's called the upper slips, uh, which is at the very top, right right under the ceiling uh, at the side. And um, I used to either apply by mail on the day booking opened or when you could buy tickets on the same day as mailing bookings opened. I used to go very early in the morning to the box office and stand in line and, and buy my tickets. And, and I, I just got such an extraordinary education um, through my opera-going experience. I, I Not only did I see every opera, I saw every opera multiple times. Um, and in the 70s, when I started going, the the now legendary artists like Sutherland, like Gobby, like Christoph, like Vickers, and of course, Domingo and Carreras and Pavarotti and Caballé um, wow. were, were all appearing there on a very regular basis. Um, and so an artist like John Vickers was really formative for me. I, I learnt Othello and Grimes and, um. What an his, education that is. What an yeah, education. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, and after I, I finished school, I, I wanted to go to university. Uh, I, I wanted to study law and I chose King's College, um, which is part of the University of London, um, because it's situated, um, equidistant from the Royal Opera House on one side and the National Theatre on the other side. That's interesting. (laughs) And I have to admit, I spent more time in those two institutions than I did in the law library. But you ended up a barrister, didn't you? I ended up a barrister. I I got my law degree. I then took my bar finals and uh, I was called to the bar, as it's called, in um, 1979. Wow. Wow you stayed with but then you started working in in opera well i did my um pupillage um as a barrister Uh, and so i i i did everything that i could do up to the point of practicing independently as a freelance barrister um i was offered a place in chambers which is a big hurdle to 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 jump when you're qualifying as a young barrister um and i was in a Strange situation, because I went to see my head of chambers who was offering me this place, and I said, well, thank you, I'm, I'm really flattered that you're interested in me, but I have this passion for, for opera and for theatre. Would you mind if I didn't give you an answer for a few months, and if I took myself off to see if I could spend three, four months working in the theatre?" And I don't think anyone had responded to an offer of a place in Chambers in that way to him before. Wow. And he was so astonished that he just said, well, okay. So uh, that's what I did. I, I wrote 60 or 70 letters to people I didn't know saying, I'm a newly qualified barrister. I have a passion for the arts. Um Might you have a job for me? Uh, I wrote to theater companies, to opera companies, to symphonies. And out of that, I got one job, um, which was as the assistant to the director at Sadler's Wells Theatre in North London. And that's where I started.
0: Wow. And then from there, I, a series, you ended up at the at the Welsh National?
1: Yeah, I, I was at Sadler's Wells for four years. I became theatre manager and company manager of the little opera company that was created there. And then in 1984, I moved to Welsh National Opera. Um, initially as company secretary. So as, as a a kind of legal person, um, I got that job because of my legal qualifications, but it was a great apprenticeship. I I was the, um, assistant to the then gen, then general director, Brian McMaster, um, who since went on to become a, a very distinguished director of the Edinburgh international festival now, sir, Brian McMaster. And, um, I, I had another wonderful education from, from him because I had an opportunity to get to know every aspect of an opera company, um, without actually being responsible for any of it. So I was involved in union negotiations, in casting meetings, in planning meetings, budgeting. Um, I, I was responsible for negotiating co-productions. So I got to know colleagues from, um, other um, opera companies elsewhere in Europe and further afield. Um, it was a, a fantastic education. And then I became director of opera planning, uh, which in the US will be called, um, artistic administrator or director of artistic administration. Um, and I was at Welsh National Opera for seven years or so. Um, and then I got, um, approached about a job at Philips Classics, the record company. Um, in Holland um, mm-hmm. a, as a member of the A&R department, as a, a artists and repertoire department, uh, as an executive producer. And so I left Welsh National Opera in 1992 and moved to Holland, um, lived in Amsterdam, worked great in... Great city, a, isn't it? It's a great yeah, city. Yeah. Um, lived in a little town, uh, sorry, lived in Amsterdam, worked in a little town called Barn, um, which is where Phillips Classics was based in those days. And um, it was a Totally different experience living in a different country for the first time. Um, working in a for-profit multinational conglomerate of organizations, um, learning a new business. Well, you learned, you, you brought in all of the big opera stars to
0: to recording. Well, I was,
1: I was the key, um, person at Philips working with a number of their Exclusive artists. Um, uh, and so the artists that I worked with, um, on a very regular basis included people like Jesse Norman, Sylvia McNair, Bernard Heitink, Sir Neville Mariner, um, John Elliott Gardner, Colin Davis, um, uh, Seiji Ozawa, uh, a, a really extraordinary array of, of the world's leading artists. Um, uh, and it, it was a fascinating few years because I, had opportunities to get to know the Boston Symphony, the Vienna Philharmonic, the Berlin Philharmonic, uh, obviously the Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam, um, working on a lot of, of both operatic and non-operatic projects. It was, it was great. I had a wonderful time. I, I suppose I never felt as at home in the record business as I had felt working in an opera company. Uh, and so... It didn't take me long to realise that, that that probably a record company was not where I was going to spend the rest of my career, and and so when um, completely unexpectedly, um, I, I was approached by Welsh National Opera two or three years after I left. Um, the the then general director had um, left unexpectedly. Uh, and uh, I was asked whether I would be interested in applying for the job. I, w- I wasn't offered the job. I was, um, a- a- approached about applying for it. And there was a long, complex, rigorous appointment process. And then in, um, the fall of 1994, um, I went back to Welsh National Opera as general director. Wow.
0: That's the, yeah, yeah that's terrific. And, and I so that,
1: that was the, that was the moment when I could say that, that, um, my dream of, as a 14 year old, uh, was, was fulfilled for the first time. And that's, that's when I became responsible for an organization for the first time.
0: And, uh, and for when I, I understand you did very well or you, uh, you got the enrollment, uh, the, the audience uh increased and the funding and you just brought new life into that. It
1: was a exciting time. I was general director at Welsh National Opera for 11 years and during those 11 years the company won more major national awards for its productions than any other British opera company in the period. Wow. That's, um it's that's impressive. And yeah, as you say, we we built audiences, we we strengthened the company's um finances, but uh, above all, what and this I suppose is what we're all here for, um, the work on stage was fantastic. Welsh National Opera is a wonderful company and, and it does really great work and uh, it was um, a time in which we could explore repertory that the company hadn't done either never before or, or not for many years, introducing new directors, new conductors, new, new singers into the organization. Okay. Um, and we, we did a very wide range of important repertoire.
0: And then you moved into, to Houston. Came, yeah. Came I,
1: the U.S. Again, I, I was, um, approached by the search firm that, that Houston Grand Opera had appointed to recruit a general director. David Gottlieb had been general director in Houston for 33 years. He left HGO, Houston Grand Opera, um, to become general director of, of San Francisco Opera, which he still is. And so I, I was approached by um, a search firm. Um, I, I actually had my first meeting with the search consultant at the Opera America conference that year in Detroit. Um, and that led to my going to Houston for a few days and having a very intensive series of, of interviews and cocktail parties and breakfasts and lunches and dinners um, with, with members of the board, members of the company. I must say it was a very extensive um, interview process. Very good, because when I first responded to the um, call from the search consultant, I had no idea whether it was going to be a good match. I, I, The only time I had ever been to Houston before going there for my interviews was in 1976, when as a student, I went around the U.S. on a Greyhound bus. Um, <laughs> it was bicentennial year, and I spent five or six weeks um, going around the whole of the U.S., on, um, spending most of the nights on, a Greyhound, on Greyhound buses. And I remember going to Houston, I think it was just for a day, because what I wanted to do was see the Astrodome and go to NASA. And I did those things and got on the bus and traveled overnight then to Miami, I think was next. There had
0: to be a, a daunting assignment when you did get the general director at Houston, following a man who's been there 33 years.
1: Yes, it, it was um, was daunting. Um, just as um, Bill Mason has um, occupied some very big shoes here and left some very big shoes, so David Gottlieb, um, like um, Bill here, m- made an enormous um, impression on the company, on the city, transformed Houston Grand Opera from a comparatively small-scale um, regional company into a major international player. Um, but it was an absolute thrill to, to, to move to the U.S., to live here for the first time. And the move from Cardiff in Wales to Houston is um, more than the 5,000 miles oh, of yeah. geography. It's like cultural jump. Isn't it? And and that's I think why I enjoyed it so much. Okay. Um you don't move 5000 miles and hope to find what you left behind. I I mean Houston yeah. is is I I now having had several years of experience of living in the US and and traveling around the US extensively. Houston is um the most un-European of US cities. Yeah. But that's that's why I loved it so much. It was a completely new environment.
0: And you did the same thing in Houston that you did in
1: Wales, right? Well, not the same thing mm, by I, any what means. What I mean but, it, but in, in
0: uh, success in in, in funding and creative and attendance,
1: it worked very well. Yeah. I felt I felt very at home there. I, I felt very energized by the need to try and work out how opera, as on one level a four hundred year old European art form, could be of relevance to a very un-European, very 21st century city like Houston. And and frankly, I think we at Lyric are, are engaged in exactly the same um, thought process and, and exploration. Um, I, I suppose as a European um, coming to the U.S., now settled completely in the U.S., I'm now a U.S. citizen, um, I, I suppose I'm more conscious than many about opera's European roots. And I'm all equally conscious about how un-European an environment um, we have in the US. And, and so our job at Lyric as a major opera company is to find a way of ensuring that our art form and our company relate to our city in the broadest, deepest way possible. I I see an opera company as a cultural service provider, Uh, and our job, our responsibility, is to provide our city with the the broadest, deepest, most relevant cultural service we possibly can, both inside the opera house and outside the opera house.
0: Yeah, you, I, in researching about your background, you, you've, you've talked a lot in interviews about uh, the effects of music on people and the role of art in society. You already mentioned some of that but
1: yeah that's one of your driving passions i believe that passionately i believe that um society's health depends upon culture and the arts among other things
0: i totally agree Um, it
1: it seems to me that if if we want our environment our, our social environment to be um a place worth living in culture and the arts have to occupy a, a central position in our lives. Uh, and it seems to me that that the trend for culture and the arts to drift to the periphery of people's horizons represents truly a crisis. Uh, and we at Lyric are just one or, or arts organization. We're a big arts organization, but we're just one. We can't single-handedly avert that crisis. But it seems to me that we have to play our part to try everything we can possibly do to re-centralize culture in people's horizons. I,
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I'd like to
1: talk a little bit
0: about some of the shows, some of the operas that, that uh, you guys have produced this year. Yes. This This is not your year yet of... Where you've selected the operas, right? It, these it, are ones you had inherited. It's from a Bill mixture, Mason? to be honest. A mixture. Um, okay. The,
1: the first, the first year that will be entirely of my planning will be the fifteen sixteen season. Because you got to go that far in advance. Huh? Well, opera planning cycles are, are, are very long, and and so as I would expect, um, there's a lot of planning that took place before I started. But inevitably, plans are not one hundred percent complete, and okay. so I feel completely immersed in in what Lyric is doing, and and I, I feel. That I completely own what we do. So I'm very happy to talk about everything we do as if it was entirely of my planning. Okay.
0: Uh, let's talk about the remaining shows. And you're off, the season's off to a great start. It has got off yeah. to a great start. The lecture and was just amazing. Absolutely. I, I amazing. think,
1: I, thank you. I, it was, it was pretty special. Um, I, I think probably the most thrilling part of what we do is to present these great masterpieces to our audiences in a way that somehow recapture the thrill, the impact, the intensity that they must have had when they were new. And, and, um, I think in Electra, just as in, um, Verter, which had its opening yesterday afternoon, um, I, I think we brought those two pieces to our audiences in ways that took them by surprise. Simon Boccanegra too—that was also yes. a, a wonderfully distinguished run of performances that ended a couple of days ago. Um, but I, I, I think another fascinating part of the opening of this season is the contrast between the three pieces. Yes, both yes. musically, theatrically, um, all three of the opening pieces have offered something. Really different from each other, but cumulatively really special. Yeah, and they're they're exciting
0: because I had not seen any one of the three of them. Right, great. And I've already been blown away. If, if the season ended, not would have been a major success. Well, I'm
1: very happy to hear that because I, I I love it when people experience opera for the first time at Lyric, and that's um, what
0: I do also. That that helps uh helps me get a feel for it. I try and bring someone who has either never seen opera. Or rarely goes because they just can't afford it or whatever, for whatever, for whatever reason. And yesterday I had a new writer who's, who's writing for me. He's 20 year old University Chicago
1: student and it was only his second opera and he was just absolutely blown away. Well, good for it. you. That's, yeah. that's great that you do bring people who've never been before and who wouldn't otherwise come. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the art form does its own work. Opera is universally accessible. It's immediate. It's emotional. It's communicative. Uh, Opera, for me, is the best form of entertainment that everyone can enjoy. Our challenge is to bring as many people as possible through the doors of the Opera House... And to make sure that the people who come through the doors of the Opera House are from as broad, diverse a range of backgrounds uh, as possible. We we are so privileged to be living in a city of enormous, rich diversity. And and our job as a cultural service provider is to celebrate that diversity and ensure that the breadth and depth of service we provide reaches as many people as possible.
0: Well, that's, that's terrific. Let's talk about some of the other shows coming up. Though. Yes. Uh, you have uh, Don Pasquale. Don Pasquale, yes. Don Pasquale. It opens
1: um, in a week or so. It's a wonderful um, comedy with a serious element. Um, it's a bel canto, right? It's a bel canto style uh, of writing, which means all bel canto means is beautiful singing. It, it means that the um, vocal style of li- writing is very lyrical. It's very tuneful. It's florid at times. There's quite a lot of acrobatic vocal writing um the, the the director of of this production of Don Pasquale is a wonderful legendary singer um called Sir Thomas Allen, um who sung at lyric many times um I was chatting with him backstage yesterday um and he was saying that actually directing Don Pasquale has made him realize that the way to make the piece read to an audience is not to play it as comedy but to play it completely seriously. And then the comedy comes through. And and I'm sure he's right. I, I think the piece has great humanity. And it, it's a piece that, that not only makes you laugh, but also moves you. And and I, I was very happy to hear Tom say yesterday that that he wants the piece to speak for itself through a performance that is taking it seriously. Yeah.
0: That sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. For and then that. Hansel and Gretel, yeah.
1: um, which is a production that I'm very passionate about and very familiar with because I commissioned it as general director of Welsh National Opera oh. um, as a co production with Lyric. Okay. So it, it actually started life off in, in Wales when I was there, uh, and Lyric has performed it already, and this is the first revival at Lyric. It,
0: explain who the author is because some people read your brochures and told me, oh, is that the pop singer?
1: <laughs> it, it's someone with the same name as yeah. the. Pop singer, but a 19th-century romantic German composer, Engelbert Humperdinck. Humperdinck. Engelbert Humperdinck. If you want the okay. correct pronunciation, um, he, he was an assistant and associate of Wagner. Okay. And he um, emulates Wagner in terms of the richness of his orchestration. Hansel and Gretel is is written for a wonderfully large, rich. Very romantic orchestra, but it's full of fantastic tunes, and of course the story is dark, spooky, sinister. I mean, it is the perfect holiday fair. Yeah. You, 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 you. Is it ha- children friendly? Absolutely children yeah. friendly. Yes. Um, the the production brings out the spookiness of the original Brothers Grimm fairy story oh, in, a way, yeah. in a way, in a way that children really respond to. Frankly, I I think. It, it, kids will respond to our production far more than to a classic gingerbread house type production. Okay. Um, and do you
0: have a, don't you have a special, couple of uh, specials, st- per, uh, performances geared for children, price wise and so forth?
1: Well, for the first time for every performance of Hansel and Gretel, there's family pricing. Um and that's to encourage people to bring their kids, their grandkids, their friends, um, to to give opera a try. And they
0: can go on the on the lyrics. Website yep, you'll find details
1: interview. of that on Lyrics website, which is lyricopera.org. Um but the other thing that we're doing on December second, um, is our first ever um specific family event. It's called Popcorn and Pasquale and it's a special um, family performance. It lasts about 75 or 80 minutes. And it includes scenes from Don Pasquale with the original cast. But, um, Ross Lehman, the great Chicago actor. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> Ross, yeah. He'll be a, a kind of narrator. Um, giving people a guided tour of the opera house of I, I don't mean literally physically moving around they'll be in their seats and he'll be on stage but talking about an opera house an opera company what is opera using Don Pasquale as a, a means to introduce people for the first time to opera it's designed for kids aged five through twelve and their families um, the prices of tickets are very low. Again, you'll find all the details on, on our website. And there will be popcorn in the Opera House. Oh,
0: you know, that's a great idea. Uh, cause you know, Chicago Shakespeare does the, does the short Shakespeare's and, and, uh, uh, Steppenwolf Theater and, and, and court do productions for yes. teenagers and have yes. to get people into the arts. Yes. That is great to hear that <laughs> you're doing that.
1: We're doing lots of activities in the next few months that hopefully will introduce our work to big new audiences. January 5th for example, um, is a really unique collaboration between Lyric and the Second City. You scooped me on, I was just going to ask that. <laughs> okay, the Second City Guide that's, to the That's quite a, quite a swing. <laughs> well, I think it's really interesting. It's... it's um, one of the things that that perhaps take people by surprise who don't know about those who work in opera companies is that we all laugh a lot um and so it's we not are, all real serious it, we we have a great time yeah. and the second city guide to the opera hopefully will be incredibly funny but also will inform people about opera and opera companies um renée fleming the great soprano who is also lyric's creative consultant so she's a very important part of of the lyric family um will be starring in the second city guide to the opera diving into comedy sketches that should be interesting and she's
0: also later on going to going to uh going to be in the uh, streetcar named desire she'll be in
1: streetcar named desire can't wait for that it's one of my favorite plays it's a it's a wonderful opera by andre previn um, that was written specifically for Renee. Renee will be singing Blanche Dubois. But Renee's also going to be with us in recital with another great singer, Susan Graham, in January. Wow. So during the course of this season, our audiences will have an opportunity to experience Renee, the opera singer, Renee, the recital singer, and Renee, the, the, the comedienne. That, that will be amazing. Yeah. And you're doing a Wagner and, a, and another Verity. Um, we're doing Wagner's Master Singers of Nuremberg, Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg. Um, it's the biggest opera in the repertoire. It's a enormous, great masterpiece. Um, it has great humanity. It's, it's a, we're, we're, we're subtitling it The Big Sing because it's actually about a singing competition, but it's a truly life-changing experience coming to Meistersinger. So I
0: can't wait for that because, uh. I'm a real fan of, of Wagner. Great. I know some people say, oh, they're too long and all. They're every time I've seen a, a Wagner opera 4 I've seen four or five hour ones. It seems like I've been there two hours.
1: Yeah. And I could stay another couple hours. Yeah. It just so grabs you. If they're good, they're completely overwhelming. Yeah. They're, they're like a drug. They, they, they take you over. They, they, they're really addictive. They deliver an emotional tidal wave that more or less no other composer delivers.
0: Yeah, I, well, I just can't wait for that. Well, we've been, we've been rolling along. There's a couple of key questions I have to ask. Sure. You, so let, let me swing into that. Uh, one is your criteria for selecting, uh, operas to perform. I know you've been in the past occasionally, you've taken some risks, but what is your general criteria? People always ask me that, well, why don't they do more Baroque? Why don't they do more, Wagner, why don't, you know, everyone's
1: a, always wants to know that. It's a great question without a simple answer. Okay. Um, taking risk is absolutely fundamental to the success of every performing arts organization, in my opinion. Um, a performing arts organization will only fulfill its potential if it takes risk. It has to be responsible risk, but, um, a, a, an arts organization that is risk averse can't succeed. Um, in terms of repertory selection, um, there are a whole range of issues that come into play. I'm very conscious of the fact that the vast majority of people who come to Lyric see their opera only in Chicago. And so we, we need through our seasons and from one season to the next to provide, uh, if you like, a balanced diet. Um, the right breadth and variety of composers, of musical styles, of theatrical styles. Um, we want to take our audiences on a journey. We we want to take them on a journey of exploration as well as reacquaintance. Um, we have to find the right balance between um, ensuring that our audiences have operas um, to see on a regular basis that some of them may have experienced before, the great popular masterpieces like Bohème and Rigoletto that are coming in, in this season. But at the same time, it, it seems to me we have to combine those core operas, um, with lesser-performed masterpieces and new work, uh, and it's it's fundamental to the success of, of opera as one uh, of lyric as one of the world's great opera companies, of, of opera as an art form, uh, and to the service we provide our audiences to ensure that that, that in supporting lyric in subscribing at lyric in coming on a regular basis to what we do both in the opera house and through lyric unlimited in the activities that we will be doing around the city um that we provide our audiences with something that is um enjoyable entertaining but also thought provoking okay. stimulating inspiring enlivening i hope uh
0: i've noticed that uh, gary griffin who's one of my favorites uh is doing Oklahoma for you.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, well, after he
0: just came off of Follies. Uh, well, Follies w- last year, but also w-
1: Sunday in the Park with George yes. just now. Yeah, yeah. Both of which were fantastic yeah.
0: productions. He should, if anybody can really put a, put a spark in, in Oklahoma and make it, make it current, I'm sure. Absolutely.
1: And Oklahoma will be the start of an American musical theater initiative. Are you um, going to do one each year? The plan is that we summer? do one each year outside the opera season okay. um, as an extra event. Um, so in April, May is the time of year. Some
0: people were asking me, say, uh, find out what they're going to do. and, and uh, you... Ah, that would be telling.
1: Oh, we're, okay. we're working hard on plans, but I'm not going to reveal them to oh, you Okay, today.
0: that's that's cool. A couple of them said, well, why don't they should do Les Mis? Another one said they should do Secret Garden. South Pacific. I'm sure you're considering all of those. There's no shortage of ideas. Yeah, that's true. Um, the last thing, what, what is your plan to bring younger audiences in to the, to the lyric? I know you've done, you've got some of these price things and when people turn in tickets, uh, the, the students and the younger people can buy them at well, a discount. Well, we have our,
1: our next initiative. Um, students can sign up online and be notified when they can get um, tickets on the day of the performance um, at very low prices. Really, everything I've been talking about, um, along with lot uh, a lot else besides, is what we're doing to try and broaden the demographic of our reach from pricing to repertory selection, to the style of performances, to the way we communicate. I-, I want Lyric to be perceived around the city as a company that is all-embracing. We- we're here to provide a service to our city. Um, we need to broaden and strengthen our civic footprint in in a whole range of ways. Um, we need to make sure that the work we do Reaches as many people as possible from as broad a range of backgrounds as possible.
0: Yeah, with with uh, the graying of the audiences, that w- we certainly need that, and it, it's great to hear that you're doing that. These uh, these community uh, engagement programs and and uh,
1: to to bring the younger audiences in. Absolutely, yeah. but we also want to be of service to um, our audiences who are not so young. I oh. mean, y- y- I don't. Please don't let me. Um, imply that in focusing on, on community engagement through Lyric Unlimited and other things, we are in any way um, uh, undervaluing um, our older audiences. Oh we, no, you we, can't do that. They're really, they're the really, core of the business. <laughs> we really appreciate them, yeah. and and happily, it does seem that that people give opera a try um, in in their forties. Um, it's interesting. The, yes, I suppose it's true that the vast majority of audiences who subscribe to Lyric um, here at the Civic Opera House are, are probably aged 45 or upwards. But al- although the audience is aging to a certain extent, it's also self-rejuvenating. There are there are plenty of people who give opera a try um, in, in their late 30s or early for 40s. Yeah, that's
0: true with me. When I was younger, I just wasn't ready for it. And I think there's a certain maturity. That's why I think it's important that to bring younger people in and, and plant that seed early. And in, in it, it's like a tree, and it'll grow. Eventually, it'll grow.
1: It will yeah. absolutely. And and I know that opera as an art form will be of huge appeal to everybody. We just have to persuade people to give it a taste. Once well, they once the bug bites, so to speak, it doesn't let go.
0: Well, I know that. Uh, the lyric opera is in good hands with you. Welcome to Chicago and, 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 uh, your passion is, is definitely, uh, w- will be passed on to many people.
1: Well, I hope so. Yeah. We, we, we are passionate about what we do and we want to persuade as many people as possible to share that passion.
0: Well, folks, make sure you check out, uh, and get to the lyric. There's some fantastic things. If you just lay back and just enjoy it, it, it will, it, it will overwhelm you with, with pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to talk with you. Thank you, folks. And uh, go see a play this week and go see an opera. Thank you.